Tonight we are in uh, the book of Romans, again, having taken a brief uh, break uh, last week to look at a parallel passage as we seek to better understand the gospel of which Paul is not ashamed uh, in the book of Romans. We are in chapter 3 tonight. You may remember last week we looked at the passage from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Uh, which really does give clarity, I think, uh, to the message of justification or how sinners can be declared righteous before the presence of a holy God. Paul wrote there, for our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the very same message that we saw in Romans chapter 3 in the previous couple of weeks from chapter 3, verse 21 through 26, where we learn that sinners who fall short of God's glory are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And in that study, we looked at those three great terms very briefly of our salvation, justification, redemption, and propitiation. And so our purpose last week in looking at 2 Corinthians 5 was to really flesh out what Paul is talking about in Romans. And now we're going to come back to Romans chapter 3 and finish with verses 27 through 31. An immediate question uh, would be, and it's a reasonable one, why would the Apostle Paul just not end chapter 3 the way he does in verse 26. It is a beautiful statement. It was to show that is what God has done in his forbearance, passing over former sins, etc. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It would seem to me to be a fitting end and to many commentators who ask the similar question. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary, the very first sermon he does on these verses, 27 through 31, spends a lot of time answering that question. And some of the things he says are very, very helpful. Among them, he says that Paul does what he does in 27 through 31 by asking these questions and giving answers because the subject matter of our justification is extremely important, and we need to understand it. And so Paul, as a a good uh, polemical writer, he's writing in an argument sort of sense here. He's anticipating some of the responses that he will get, and some from Rome, etc., and he really wants people to grasp and understand what he is arguing here in Uh, Romans chapter 3 and the successive chapters after that. So he fine-tunes the message through a series of questions that clearly drive home the point that he is making regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now some say in the verses that we're going to look at there are four and some even say five separate questions. I really think it's better to see them as three questions that ask, that Paul asks and then proceeds to answer them. And I hope to show you that as we go through these verses tonight. But uh, as we do each week, would you stand as we hear the word of God read? Uh, Romans chapter 3, 27 through 31. This is God's word. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? 
by a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, it was Paul's desire, and we know by your spirit, uh, your desire as well, as you are the great author of this word. We know your desires that we grasp, that we understand the depths of our salvation as Paul lays it out in the book of Romans. And so we pray that even through our study tonight, we would better understand these things and all the more rejoice in all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray this with great hope and the promise of your blessing upon your word, not only read and preached, but the word heard and word received with joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So where are we in Romans? We are in the end of chapter 3. So after Paul has argued very persuasively that all men are guilty before God and all men are deserving his full wrath and displeasure, that's chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul has now unveiled the gospel of grace. He's told us that there is now, and he's really speaking about the coming of Christ, there is now a righteousness from God that has been manifested, declared, set forth for all to see. And it is found, he says, through faith in Jesus Christ. This, of course, is the good news to sinners, having been convicted of our sin through the verses that we've mentioned from chapter 1 through chapter 3. Having understood ourselves to be in need of this grace, we have come to see this good news for sinners like you and like me. In fact, we would declare it is the best news that can ever be spoken. The, the news of how sinners like us can be found righteous and acceptable before a holy God. However, as we consider those things, if we're honest, as we begin to examine the gospel in the book of Romans, this gospel of which Paul is not ashamed, this message that God saves sinners cuts at something that is true of all of us, that is part of our nature. It's almost something that is sort of hardwired into us as fallen creatures. And that is the tendency that we all have to think that in some way, even if it is ever so small, we had some part to play in this great work of salvation. We would argue with ourselves, perhaps, that we contributed something. We did something. That we're not really as bad as the Bible says we are. Surely, we say, those people out there are bad, surely. But not me. I don't measure up like they do. That is the tendency that all of us as fallen human beings have. We want to have some part in this work of salvation. 
Calvin writes with regard to our knowledge of ourselves in his classic work, The Institutes, for we always seem to ourselves righteous, upright, wise, and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. So, so as we study the glory and the wonders of the gospel, there's something inside of us that wants to fight back against it and to say, yes, God did the work, but we have some, some small part. And so Paul needs, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to remove all tendency for man to boast in himself or to find something that we contributed to this great work of salvation. And that is one of the reasons, and, and I agree with those who see it this way, that that's one of the reasons Paul does what he does in these verses. These questions are meant for us to see very, very clearly how important uh, Paul, uh, what Paul says about salvation. And so let's look at these questions. I said in the beginning, I think there are just three, and, and I think we can see that clearly. I think the first question is in verses 27 and 28. Even though in your text there are question marks, there are three questions really, but they're all dealing with the very same issue. And that issue is stated very clearly. What then, verse 27, becomes of our boasting? Our boasting is that arrogance and pride that, we're tended, uh, that our tendency is towards. Uh, a boasting in ourselves, a boasting in our own works, our own abilities, etc. Paul says, what becomes then of boasting? What becomes of boasting? Now, some argue that he's really referring primarily to the Jews of whom he has spoken in the previous chapters. Their tendency as God's covenant people of the old covenant, that they had a tendency to look back on their privileges and their relationship with God, which was distinct and separate from the Gentiles, that they particularly had a tendency towards boasting. And there may be some reason to believe that that's Paul's main emphasis here. He's really referring to the Jews. But it has to be admitted, I think, that all of us have the same tendency, whether we see ourselves with those privileges or not. Again, we have a tendency to elevate ourselves and to minimize what Paul says here about the work of salvation being God's alone. You see that in many places in the Bible, I think in much of Paul's writings, he speaks about this, but one of the places I think we see a clear picture of what this boasting is, and we might say this, this emphasis is on the Jewish uh, race, if you will, with respect to their relationship with God through the covenant. In Luke 18, Jesus tells that wonderful parable that sort of sets in opposition these two views, the boasting as well as the humility. You remember that parable, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14? It's a classic example he also told, uh, Luke writes, this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, 
God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus renders a judgment immediately after telling the parable. I tell you this, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Paul is talking about that Pharisee here. He's talking about that Pharisee as an example of what this boasting is, that we have a tendency to boast in ourselves and our own efforts and works. And what Paul says here is that boasting in light of what God has done in the gospel, which, through which we are justified only through faith in Christ, that boasting, he says, is excluded. There is no place for boasting, he says. There is no room for us to exalt ourselves or to impose ourselves on this work which God has done apart from us. It is excluded. And then he goes on to ask these questions about this big question. How is it excluded? Is it excluded by the law of works or by the law of faith? Now, what gets confusing in Romans is the way in which Paul uses this word law. He's not talking about the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. He's using the word law to mean something akin to rule or principle or idea. So what is the rule by which boasting is excluded? Is it by works or is it by faith? Well, of course, it's not by works. We can't impose or bring our works and add it to what God has done. So he argues it is not by works, it is by the law or the rule or principle of faith. It is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only by believing on Christ that we are justified in God's sight, receiving through faith what God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Not even the faith by which we believe and receive the promises of God is our work. You remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. You see how Paul in both Ephesians and Romans is speaking in the very same way. It is not of works. There's no rule of works which would exclude boasting. Works actually increases our boasting. And so he says the rule, the principle that operates, that excludes boasting is faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that faith is the gift of God. R.C. Sproul says, with respect to this tendency that we have to insert ourselves and to bring our works, he says it's the concept of justification by faith alone, which faith is not of us but of God, that crushes the voice of human arrogance 
and human pride. And that's exactly what Paul says. It's that rule of faith that crushes boasting, pride, and arrogance. And then Paul makes this wonderful summary statement as he seeks to answer this question, what becomes of our boasting? He says in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see his argument. You see how he's narrowing down the focus for us to be very, very clear of what it is that he is speaking of here. And this statement, this we hold, is a corporate statement. We could even use it if we wanted to. We could use it as a statement and a confession of our faith. I could ask you, Christian, what is it that you believe? And you could say together with me with one voice, we hold together that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It is the principle or the rule of faith that excludes and sets aside any tendency to human arrogance, pride, or boasting. So you see more clearly what it is that Paul is talking about in these verses. As the great hymn writer Horatius Bonar wrote in his great hymn, Not What My Hands Have Done, Not What My Hands Have Done Can Save My Guilty Soul, not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. That, that phrase or that, uh, I should say, uh, song, that hymn is a statement of absolute dependence upon God. All boasting is laid aside. There's nothing we bring to God to secure our justification. There is no, Paul says, boasting, for the law of faith denies it. The second question is one that follows immediately after that, and it is a very important question, one in which Paul has already sort of dealt with, but he's, again, remember, these questions are to go deeper into what Paul is saying because it's so important for us to understand. Verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised, that is the Jew by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. That's the Gentile. So the work of God is one work. Does God work, Paul is asking, this way by faith among only the Jews? Or does he do it as well among the Gentiles? Is God the God only of one particular people group? Well, Paul says, no, absolutely not. And he, he doesn't speak to it. He doesn't deal with it with respect to going back to the Old Testament. But when he says no, what he's doing is saying, have you not remembered or heard all that the prophets have spoken? They have always spoken that the work of God is for the Jew and Gentile alike, and that that work is God's work and will be accomplished by God and received by faith alone. In fact, what he goes back to when he does what he does in answering this question 
when he says, yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one, he is going back to the fundamental confession of the Old Testament uh, person of God, the man or a woman who believed and trusted in God's promises. There was a fundamental confession of their faith in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We often quote it, uh, the whole of it, as we have our children baptized, as we present them for baptism as with respect to parents' responsibility to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But the beginning of that is the fundamental testimony of faith for the Old Testament saint. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's one God. Monotheism, he is one God. What Paul is saying is that God is not divided. He's not divided in what he does. He doesn't devise, hasn't devised a plan or a way of salvation for all of the Old Testament saints, all of the Jews whom he chose through Abraham. He hasn't prepared or uh, devised a plan for them and then going on to devise a separate plan different from theirs for Gentiles. His argument is we have always confessed that the Lord is one. He is one God with one way of salvation for all who would believe. He's argued that in Romans up until this point. And so he says very clearly here, God is one. He will justify the circumcised, the Jew, and he will justify the uncircumcised in the very same way. It will be through Christ, in Christ, and through and of faith. That's how he does it. Commentators have questioned why does he say by faith for the circumcised and through faith for the uncircumcised? And all commentators throw up their hands and says because he used a different word, he means the same thing. It is always through or by faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord our God is one. And so the idea that God would have a different plan of salvation for different people at different times is contrary to the very nature of God. He's one God. And he has revealed himself and his purpose and plan in both the Old and the New Testament. Now, that New Testament revelation of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ being manifested in Paul's day in the coming of Christ. One more question, and it's an important one, as important as the other two are. You see how he is just focusing and narrowing the focus down so on these particular issues so that he can dispense with these here. Now, he won't completely dispense, as we'll see in a moment. But you notice the last question in verse 31. Do we then, if it's all by faith, this principle of faith, if that principle negates or excludes boasting, if it's true of both Jew and Gentile that all will be through faith in Christ justified by faith and faith alone, do we then overthrow the law, that is the law of Moses, you know, he's back to the use of this term, law as the law of Moses, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Do we negate it? Do we set it apart? If we have no part, our works of obedience have no part in our justification, do we then by this principle of faith 
overthrow the law and make it irrelevant. And Paul says this, by no means, God forbid, on the contrary, we actually uphold the law. This is a very important question, not only for Paul to deal with with the Roman believers, but for everyone to understand the principle of faith, the rule of faith, operating as that which and by which we receive all the benefits of Christ in our justification. That's how we receive it. That's the hand that's empty that reaches out. We receive it. That gift of faith is from God. All of that does not, he says, negate the law. It doesn't overthrow it. Rather, it establishes it. That's why I had earlier read in the service the passage from James chapter 2. And if you were reading James chapter 2, if you're following along, you'll notice that Paul uses there as well very similar language and words, uh, James does, as Paul does here in Romans. It can get confusing. In fact, if we were listening carefully, you heard him say that Abraham was justified by his works when he offered up Isaac in obedience to God. It says Rahab, the prophet, was justified by her works when we re she received the messengers and sent them out by another. I think what's very important to understand, as we saw just a moment ago when we talk about the idea of uh, the use of words here, uh, that James uses justify in his letter in a different way than Paul does. Paul is using justification most often as the term which talks about our acceptance before God. How is a man or a woman acceptable in the presence of God? How are they given a right status before God. James is writing to believers, some of whom are arguing that it is merely okay to say, I have faith, but don't have the works that necessarily flow from that faith. James is not saying that there's a justification that takes place before the presence of God where God looks at what Christ has done and then looks at our works and says, okay, you're now justified on the basis of what Jesus has done and on the basis of what you have done. That's not what James is arguing because he's not arguing about salvation or our right standing before God. He's really arguing about the connection between justification, our right standing before God, and sanctification, the evidence of God's ongoing work in our lives conforming us to the image of Christ. And so when James writes what he does, he's not talking about justification in the same way that Paul is. And that's very important to note because what James then is saying is exactly what Paul is saying here the principle or rule of faith which excludes boasting is actually something that establishes or upholds the law in our lives. It actually encourages us with great joy to walk in obedience to God. Far from overthrowing the law and laying it aside, it reveals the law to be what it really is for every true believer 
a guide for living in how we can please God. How it is that we can please and glorify God in our lives. It is by our following of his commandments. Think of 1 John, how often John talks about the joy in which the believer delights to do the will of God. He walks in obedience to God because now Christ living in him, his life is being lived out. And what is it that brought Jesus the greatest joy as he lived in this world? It was to do the will of his father in heaven. So Paul says very clearly, by no means does the rule or principle of faith, which excludes boasting in our own works, In no way does that overthrow the law. It establishes and upholds it. We are now people who love the law of God. I think both of us as pastors have encouraged you to read Psalm 119 devotionally as you read verse after verse of that psalm, the longest psalm in the Bible. Every part of it talks about the love that the believer has for God's commandments, his statutes, his laws, his testimonies, and all of the other words that are used. Psalm 119 is the believer's voice in what Paul is saying here, that the principle of faith actually upholds and exalts the law of God. It is in no way overthrown. So you see three questions, three broad questions. There are sub-questions, but you've seen the questions, right? Where is boasting? It's excluded by this principle or rule of faith. Is God the God only of the Jews or is he also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Because all, whether Jew or Gentile, will be saved in the same way. Justified by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, received by faith. And this idea of the principle or the rule of faith, is that in any way supposed to overthrow, lay aside, or set it apart as insignificant and no longer applicable, the law of God? Absolutely not. The law is, in fact, by the rule of faith. It's, in fact, established and upheld by that rule. Paul has been pressing these things because these are the questions that people often ask. And he takes us deeper into understanding what he is saying in these verses. Now, beginning in chapter 4, as we sort of wind down all of this, beginning in chapter 4, he will deal specifically with the importance of faith and the principle that it is by grace alone through the instrument of faith alone that is central. It was true and central of Abraham, of David, and of all the Old Testament saints. And as we have seen, this faith is not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God. And so, in chapters 9 through 11, he'll deal with the issue of Jew and Gentile, that God is the God of both, And that he is working out his plan and purpose of salvation among all peoples, not just the Jews, as he has always promised. And so Paul's going to return to this idea about God being one God of both the Jew and the Gentile. 
And then in places like chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, and other key uh, texts, Paul is going to argue exactly what James argues, as we saw, that faith without works is dead. Far from overthrowing the law of God, faith upholds the law in a life united to Christ, which counts itself dead to sin and alive to righteousness. The law is now something the believer delights to obey as a way to please God. So these questions are not just tangential. Really, the rest of Romans is going to come back to these questions and look at them again and again as Paul continues to unveil this gospel of which he is not ashamed. So we'll study those things in the weeks and the months to come by God's grace and we'll seek more and more to understand this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But I can't help as we close to think about this tendency and need that we have to boast. It is so natural to us, such a part of who we are, again, hardwired into our fallen nature. Isn't there anything at all that we can boast in? Well, you know there is. You know there's something that the Bible says we can boast in, and you're not surprised to hear me say that there is. Thy works, Horatius Bonar said, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to my heart. They tell me that all is done, and they bid my fear to depart. Thy pains, not mine, O Christ, upon the shameful tree, have paid the law's full price and purchased peace for me. Thy cross, not mine, O Christ, has borne the awful load of sins that none in heaven or earth could bear but God. Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails save that which is of thee. We are called to boast, yes, still to boast, but not in ourselves, not in our works, not in anything that we have done but to boast only in Christ and what he has done and accomplished for us on the cross. Paul writes to the Corinthians, that very troubled church in the beginning of his first letter, and you surely remember these words, for consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise who would boast in their wisdom. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong who would boast in their strength. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then who can forget the words of Paul at the end of his letter to the Galatians, where he's dealing with such an important problem, still justification, but but really dealing with it head on as that church is in, in terrible danger of being uh, moved away from the cross of Christ and from the gospel. Remember what he said, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, a new creation in Christ Jesus. So Christian, boast. Boast as often as much in you as you want in the God who saved you. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. God forbid that any of us should boast in anything else but the cross of Christ by which the world has been crucified to us and us to the world. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, as we consider these questions which penetrate deeply into the doctrines that we have been studying in Romans, they bring clarity to our minds. They they remind us of these truths of which Paul sets forth here. We thank you for your spirit who blesses your word to our hearing and to our growth. And we pray that as Paul learned uh, through your grace, that we would learn it as well, that our only boast is in the cross of Christ. Our only glory is in the one who gave himself for us and by whose righteousness we are able to stand in your presence. And so, Father, help us to grasp these truths, to live them out in our lives, to delight to follow you in all that you have revealed to us in your word. And, Father, would you be glorified and exalted in our lives, in the life of this church, we pray, and in all things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 